Amen. Praise God for that worship. So great. I love how you can have as many distractions as the enemy will throw at us. And then we just sing, let it all fade away. And here we are, close to the Lord, having an encounter with, with him. Well, if you have your Bible, please open it up to the book of 1 Corinthians. And I hope you have a Bible today. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hands, and we will get a copy of God's Word in your hands as a gift to you. We'd love to give you a Bible today. I see one hand right over there. We'll get you, get you a Bible. Just hold it up. A couple more right over here in the middle. Um, yeah, those will be coming your way really soon. Got those on right there. So, yes, we're in the love chapter. We have been in 1 Corinthians now. This is our 14th week, and we have come to one of the most popular, one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture. And if this is your first time with us, you came on a really, really good Sunday. This is, this is as good as it gets. As a matter of fact, the title of this sermon is The Greatest, because we are going to be seeing that Paul has been talking about using your spiritual gifts in the church. He's been talking about how you can use the talent and the gifts that God has given you, and you can, with love, serve one another, build one another up. You can speak encouraging words that are prompted by the Holy Spirit to each other. But there's something that holds it all together. And you have to have this. If you don't have it, you're missing the point. What holds it all together? It's Love. Love is what holds it all together. And as Paul is elaborating on all these spiritual gifts, in right in the middle of it, he pauses to elaborate on love. And he really gives us a drop-the-mic moment on the power and the supremacy and the necessity of love in everything that you do. So this is the thing that holds it all together. It's something that has to be there and this is where we would say, today, you're going to see why love is the greatest. Why it's greater than hope. Why love is greater than faith. Verse 13 of chapter 13 says at the, end of the, at the very end of this chapter, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And this is, we're going to see why love is the greatest, most challenging virtue that you could ever strive for. The church of God at Corinth is so much like us. They were lost. They were in darkness. They were hopeless before they found love. And when they met Jesus Christ, when his love sought them out, they were changed. They were transformed. Their, their thoughts were made new. And they went from darkness into life and hope and redemption and sanctification, all these things that you see in chapter 1, verse 30. They found their new calling as they were called out by the name of Jesus Christ to a new life through him. So let's now open up with verse 1. We're going to read the first three verses. You're going to see why love is the greatest, and you're going to see why it is the action that holds it all together. So verse 1 says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is saying that if you do not have love, no matter what you are doing with your life, you are missing it. You're missing the peace that holds it all together for eternity, for, for God's eternal glory. These are strong words, and honestly, these are hard words to swallow, especially for a religious person. When you think about all the things that you could do for God, if you're missing this one piece, it literally means nothing. That is actually a frightening thing. This is why the first point today is fear doing good without love. When you look at the heaviness of this and the weight of this, this is a very serious thing. We are told that you can do amazing things for God. You can serve God. You can love other people. But if you're not loving other people, you're missing the point. I think when you look closely here, Paul is describing three different types of people in these first three verses. These are pretty broad categories, but I want you to almost personalize this and put yourself into one of these three categories because I think we can all find an area where we would do something and it's easy for us to miss doing it out of love. So the first, the first verse would really tell us the first type of person. And this first person is the highly talented, gifted person. Look again at verse 1. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This is the type of person who has the ability to move people with the power of what they say. They find their identity often in their gifts to motivate and inspire people. And you often find satisfaction in displaying that gift. For this gifted, talented person, often your greatest fear is not being appreciated and not being admired. And, and very often, the filter through which you make your decisions is how will this benefit me? How will this make me look? But without love, you are an indistinguishable noise that's annoying at best, repulsive at worst. And this is honestly the worst nightmare for this extremely talented, gifted person to just be tuned out. Over time, it doesn't matter how true or how beautiful you think you sound, if you're doing it without love, you're turned off and you're tuned out. The second type of person is in verse 2. And this is your natural born leader. Look at verse 2. If I have prophetic powers to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. This is the person, probably not as flashy as the first type of person, but these are the intellectuals, the achievers. They can move mountains. They can make the impossible happen. They know how to, how to just get things done. But those of you out here who are in this category, you feed off that special ability that you have. You put yourself in a position to succeed, and often without realizing it, at times you can even stretch the truth to make something happen. You rationalize away obstacles. You can be patient and kind, but usually it's only to advance yourself or to get what you need out of a person. And a lot of times this type of person will look at other people as an obstacle to, to just they have to they just have to hurdle over to get done what they need to get done. But if you don't have love, 
the Bible says you are nothing. Not you are becoming nothing, but literally you are nothing, meaning you're getting your 15 minutes of fame right now. You're getting all the glory that you need right now here on this earth, and it won't matter for eternity with God. Without love, people are going to drive you crazy. Without love, you will burn yourself out if this is the type of person that you are. Without love, you can serve others, but without love, no matter what you do, it is not going to impact God's glory for eternity, and you will not be rewarded for that for eternity. The third type of person, verse 3, this is probably the largest group of people. This probably fits the majority of us. It's the doers. Look at verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So it's not the most talented of the most talented, not the leader of leaders type of person. You really have the mindset that if I know what I need to do, and if I get done what I need to do, God's going to use it. God's going to bless it. God will even be pleased with me. So you're more of the grinder. I'm just going to get my job done and let God take care of it. But if you don't have love, you are missing the point and it's not held altogether. Christians can fall into this sense of duty. We can sometimes be pushed by fear of man. And you can sacrifice and give and give and give, but you're missing love. Serving God, serving others can be done with the wrong motives, and we can rob God of his glory. And the fearful, terrifying truth is that you gain nothing from that. It's possible to feed the hungry. It's possible to give to the needy, to bless people with your spiritual gifts, but find your identity in just the ministry and not be motivated and moved by God's love for you so that you do that for other people. God says, I love you because I love you. Not because you're great, not because you sacrificed, not because you're some good person. We're told in Isaiah that our righteousness is as filthy rags before a holy God. God loves you because he is love, period. We have to understand that. Now, don't be discouraged. My goal isn't to just make you feel like, oh, no, I can never do anything right. God's never going to be happy with me, and, and this is just pressure. I have to do it the right way. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you have to do, you have to check yourself, and you have to ask yourself, what am I doing, and why am I doing it? Am I doing it because God loves me? Because I am inspired by the fact that he chose me and loved me? Or am I doing it so I can look better? Am I doing it so I can make myself feel, like I just feel good about myself? Fear doing good without love, but the solution is to stop worrying about how you feel and just simply love people. That's what we all have to do. We have to all get to that, ploy, that place in our lives. Before we go any further, I think I need to actually just park here and talk about what this type of love is. Because this isn't the hot pink shade of love that we often see like in our culture. All right? We're not talking about the Disney princess getting butterflies for Prince Charming kind of love here. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of different versions of love in the Greek language that we even see in the New Testament. Okay, There's the storge love. This is the affectionate. This is the uh, sentimental type of love. 
That's not what we have in 1 Corinthians 13. Another Greek word for love is eros. This is your sensual, passionate form of love, romantic sense of love. Like, that's not it here at all. This isn't even the brotherly love, not phileo love either. What we're seeing here is agape love. Agape love is so much more different than any kind of love that we often would sense or feel in our culture or see just in our media. It's, it's a different type of love. This is a sacrificial, powerful, noble form of love that says it's more than a feeling, it's an act of the will. A love that God has for us. This is the kind of love that we see displayed on the cross where Jesus sacrificed his very life for people like us who didn't deserve that love. Jesus is agape love personified. And agape love, if I could define it, I would say it's choosing to sacrificially love someone who has nothing to offer in return. It's an action verb. With God's agape love that is lavished on us, we say, I now choose to glorify God by showing that love to other people. He sacrificed everything for me, so I am going to now sacrifice for this person. I'm going to sacrifice and give to this person who doesn't even deserve it because God gave so much to me. God is the source of agape love, and without him, we can't accomplish this, and we can't pull this off without him. So fear doing good without love. I know you don't want to waste your love or waste your life. Who would? So let's dig deeper into this agape love. It's not again, what we usually experience, what we usually see. But the rest of these verses in this chapter are going to give us a great description of what God's love is for us. This is our second point. Point number two is love the way God loves you. That's what we see in verses four through seven. Look with me in the text. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the quality of love that inspired Jesus Christ to be brutally crucified on the cross. If you know Jesus as your Savior, if you by repentance and faith have turned to him, you have experienced the agape love of God. The agape love of God is now yours. This is the quality of love that we see always from the giver who loves us with a perfect love that can't be any less or any greater. It's perfect. And it has nothing to do with the beneficiary. It has nothing to do with the beloved person. It all stems from the lover. It resonates from the lover alone and never the attractiveness of you or me. This is the love that transforms believers into no longer seeing mere mortals. We don't just get annoyed at those who work with us. We don't just get ticked off at, when, at our family members when they're frustrating and annoying. No, we don't just see people anymore. Now we see individual souls who are made in the image of God. When agape love consumes you, you look at things differently. It's the sense of seeking nothing for self, but everything for others. And this is how Paul unfolds it. 
love does. There's seven things that love does. And then there's eight things in this list that love is not. Love does. What does it do? It's patient. It's kind. It rejoices in truth. It bears. It means it covers all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love has nothing to do with envy or boasting. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking, which is just insisting on your own way. It's not irritable. You don't get easily angry. It's not resentful meaning you're not keeping a record of evil that's done against, against you, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing. You're never going to take pleasure in the fact that somebody else is doing something wrong. It hurts you. See, we tend to equate love often with serving and giving. And in our minds, it's really easy to just say love, okay, it's this, it's this mushy, soft-centered tenderness that I just give to people. But when you look at this list, this list forces you to say love is more than just that. It's more than just affection. Love is actually truth in action. It's showing the nature of God with my life, right? And there's so much more to God than simply his affection. That's a huge part of it. But God is holy and God is just and God is righteous, And to have agape love, a sacrificial love, it means you need to have truth and you need to have affection. Love is equal parts both of these things. Not just one or the other, it's both are a part of the whole. All truth with no love, what does that lead to? Very often that's going to lead into brutality if it's all truth with no affection. But if it's just all affection and you don't have the sense and the care and the concern to speak truth into their life, what do you have? You have wishy-washy hypocrisy. Do you see how you have to have both truth and affection? Otherwise, we're just playing games with people. And we, we, we can't do that. Your kids need affection, obviously. For some of us, it's easier just to give affection than it is to give truth. For others of us in this room, it's easier just to come down with the truth, and these are the facts, this is what you need to do, and to miss the affection side of it. The people you work with, the people who work for you, sometimes they need truth, right? They need to know what they need to do the right way. But they also need affection. Kids, coworkers, nobody needs the kind of love that's lacking one of these two things because it's completely incomplete. And when you look at this full list and you see the nature of God and you see what real agape love is, it means you're blending these two and you're balancing these two together. Two of Paul's descriptions are very helpful in applying this. Looking, looking at the love is not rude. Let's just park there for a quick second, right? So often Christians miss this. We know what's true, but we just bring the hammer down on people without affection. This is why Christians have the derogatory nickname Bible thumpers. This is where this comes from. It's when we know what's true, we know what they need, and we miss the affection side of that that with love. It's not doing anyone any good to just open their mouth wide and cram truth down their throat without grace, without compassion, without coming alongside them and showing them that you care for them and that you're concerned for them. Love is gracious. It's not rude. 
So this is a warning for all the people who, who lean more on the truth side of things. You have to have the affection and grace with, with complete love. And then you see the counterphrase in verse 5. Love is not self-seeking. What are we talking about here? It does not insist on its own way. So you are the truth person. You are ready to speak truth into people's lives, right? And the temptation here on this side of it is to make people and to force people to think right. Like, I'm telling you the truth. I want you to get this. You should just be thankful. Why can't you just respond with, well, thank you for saying that. I know it was hard. I know I didn't want to hear this, and I, I appreciate you, you just stepping out and, and saying this for me. It doesn't mean that we water down the message and say half of it. It's knowing when to say something in a way that they will receive it. And this resentfulness is replaced by a concern, a prayerful care and concern for where they are at. We know that they aren't, gonna, they aren't exactly where they need to be, but we're going to help them and we're going to bring them, we're going to walk alongside them to bring them up and we're going to be patient with them. Do you see that beautiful breeze, the current of what this love looks like in verse 4? Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. So it's so important for the church to have this balance of affection and truth. And I would ask you to just think about where do you fall on that, on that equation? Where do you lean more heavily than the other one? For me, I mean, I love just being gracious and kind to people, and it can be hard for me sometimes to speak truth and to say the hard thing that somebody needs to hear. All of us are a little bit different. For me, if it's if I'm annoyed, I'm just gonna, I just want to tell them the way it is, and I don't want to be gracious at all. But when we look at agape love personified in Jesus Christ, you go to 1 Corinthians 13 and you see this list of what it looks like. If we can show this kind of love to people, we're showing who God is to people. And people will be attracted to that. So on this list, when I meditate on all that it entails, I think you could sum it up by saying this. On the major's action, on the minor's acceptance, in all things love. Think about that. Through this whole list, all these, all these attributes of love, the divine agape love, this is who God is, this is who he wants us to be. We should be loving others the way God loved us. And when you put this into practice, on the majors, take action. That's the loving thing to do. On the minors, which is probably 90% of life, all these other things that don't matter as much, have some acceptance and in all things love. If I can give you a list to kind of identify and distinguish between the majors and the minors, I would say this. If it's a major thing, there's a critical path, a chronic problem, or you're in close proximity. Really quick, a critical path. This is a doctrinal error. This is a mar marital unfaithfulness. These are abusive behaviors. This is, this is sin that destroys people and others and the person who's committing it. If it's a critical path, this is a major issue, love says, I'm going to speak into that. I'm going to come alongside them and graciously, kindly, patiently try to say something to that person. Another thing would be a chronic problem, all right? This may not be as big of a sin issue, but it's repetitive. It's always there. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And if you love someone and you see this chronic problem, the loving thing to do would be to step in and probably ask a question at this place. Do you think that's a great idea? 
you think this is the best way we should spend our time? I mean, is, is spending our money this way going to bring God the most glory? Saying a, asking a question like that, saying something in a positive, uplifting way that still prompts them to think would be a way that you can address with love, in action, a chronic, a chronic path problem. The last one is close proximity, right? There's, there's always a difference between how close you are with someone. If my neighbor goes out and buys a $45,000 SUV and I don't think he can afford it, is it my place to say something? Probably never. But if it's my spouse that says, well, I want to go out here and buy this $45,000 SUV and I know we don't have the money for it, I'm going to say something. There's close proximity. So love says something to your spouse, says something to your mom or your dad or your children or the person that you work 40 hours a week with in a cautious, respectful, caring way. We often see a lot of things in life that bother us, though, are minors, just to be real. Personal preferences, personality quirks, cultural differences. And I would say, oh, wow, they didn't do it the way I wish I would have done it. The loving thing to do, though, is accept who they are, not conform them into your image, but love them like God loved you. That's acceptance. In all things love. Christ followers should be the most loving, accepting, uncritical people on the face of the earth. I mean, just think about the people that Jesus accepted. The outcasts, the weirdos, the people that no one wanted anything to do with. Jesus loved them. And you put yourself in that place. We were, we were in darkness. We were far from him. We've been seeing this the entire book of Corinthians. We're just like them, far from God, lost in darkness. He sought us out. He loved us. He called us out so we can show this love to others. God is long-suffering. You see that resonating throughout this list. He doesn't get angry quickly. This is the way God loves you, and this is the way that you are going to make a change in the world when you love others this way. It's going to make a difference. It's one of, the way God, one of the ways God will draw the lost people to himself. John 13, 35. I have this one up here for you. John 13, 35. It says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this is where we could just zoom out for a second on like the intensity and the details that we see here in chapter 13 and think about the greater context of what's going on in the book of 1 Corinthians. We already talked about this in the intro, but Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians, this is who you are now in Jesus Christ. You've been called out to this new mission, this new purpose with your life, and you are to use your spiritual gifts to edify the body to serve the body out of love, to speak truth into their lives. That's what he's saying, and then he focuses on love. But if you, would, if you would just put yourself in this position, people like people who are like them, right? There's nothing radical or different about that. The world likes people who likes them. And if we're going to be attractive or we're going to show the world the love of God, we have to take this a step further. We have to love people who have a different background than us, who are a different age, maybe a different social class. And we all come together for the common good to live on mission for the glory of God. And as a church, 
when we accept other people who have a different perspective and who have different backgrounds and we all come together under the name of Jesus, that says something to people who are lost and hopeless and who are yearning for a community. They, they are searching for a group that they can call their own. They know they're missing something in their life. And when they see, whoa, those people over there, they all have so, they're all so different. But they all have unity in Jesus Christ. God will use that. I mean, if I told you there was a restaurant, there's a restaurant right down the road, and I tell you what, the 65 and over crowd love this place. They just eat it up. They go there like every other day. It's the 65 and over crowd. Cannot get enough of it. Or if I told you this other restaurant over here, I'm telling you what, white girls from the age of 21 to 25, that is their place. They love it. They're there every other day. If you fit in that demographic, you're like, all right, I'll give that a try. Sounds good to me. If you don't fit in that demographic, no, I'll pass. So many people look at the church and they don't see something that they are missing. They don't see their need. It's like, ah, it's not for me. I'm, 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 I'm not a church person. But what if I told you there was a restaurant that the hipsters in downtown Spartanburg love this place, they go there. The young married couples in Greer, they go to this place. The international students in Bowling Springs, they go to this place. All these different people from all these different walks of life, the old, the young, the rich, the poor, they all love this restaurant. You would think, what kind of food are they serving at this place? What do they got going on over there? I need to get myself over there and see what is on that menu. That's the way it is for the church when we have love. When love holds it all together, we show the world that they're missing something. And it's what they need. It's what they have to have. It's the love of God. And we are the conduits and the people who should show that. Love is the action that holds it all together. I told you earlier that love is the greatest. And the rest of this chapter irrefutably proves that point. This is our last point right here, point three. Find the love that you can never lose. Find the love that you can never lose. Look at verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love never ends. Other translations say it beautifully, love never fails. It's going to be here throughout all eternity. And to emphasize that love is the thing that holds everything together through the end of time, through eternity, Paul shows the supreme nature of love in contrast with the other spiritual gifts. The other spiritual gifts are temporal. He uses three of these to describe, describe this, right? Prophecy, tongues, knowledge. They are going to have an ending point. 
They will cease at some point. These are temporary and elementary in comparison with the gift of love that is rooted in the divine nature. Knowledge is given to all believers, but it's also a spiritual gift, so you're left to assume that there's a special dose of knowledge that is given to some Christians. We've talked about this in this this series. Some Christians have that spiritual gift of knowledge. There's going to be no place at one point in time for a deeper groaning in an incoherent tongue when we are with Christ in the eternal new earth. We won't have to have that gift anymore. Also, in our current church age, prophecy and encouragement, building up one another with what we say, with promptings, a foretelling, not a foretelling, but just an encouraging word to other people, other believers that can be weighed and tested. Prophecy is valuable, but it's not going to be necessary when we're with Jesus for all eternity, right? That's going to be like lighting a torch in the dead of the noonday sun. You won't have to do that when you're with Jesus Christ. The perfect will come, verse 12. What is this talking about? We talked about this last week. This is the time when we're with, face-to-face, eternal glorification. Everything has come full circle. Our life is the way God intended it to be. We are with him in relationship with him, in communion with him. We have an eternal resurrected body. We're no longer a child speaking and thinking in childish ways. We're now mature, the fullness of who he created us to be. That day is coming. We all have to strive for and long for that day out of love. But that day is coming. And the essence of agape will live on forever. How can prophets have anything to say after the final judgment that reveals everything? To prophesy would be completely pointless at that point because we're looking at truth personified. We're looking at agape personified when we are with him in heaven. Look at verse 13 again. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So how could faith and hope not be as great as love? Because we receive love by by repentance and faith. Faith and hope are intrinsically linked together. How is love the greatest? Why is love the greatest? Well, it's not because faith and hope aren't also eternal. We talked about these spiritual gifts. Yes, they're temporal. But faith and hope, I mean, we're always going to have that. We're not going to always have saving faith. One day our faith will become a reality when we see him face to face. Many of our hopes and aspirations will be, will be met when we are with Jesus Christ for eternity. But we are, those are still timeless. Those will never f- completely go away. We're always going to have faith and trust in our, in our Savior We're always going to have a hope in the fact that he is the one who delivers it all. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. Those are timeless. So that's not the reason. That's not why they're the greatest. Why are those two, why is faith and hope subservient to love? Do you see that? I mean, it clearly is. What's the answer? Why? Well, here's the thing. It's funny, but... Paul doesn't flat out say why. He actually doesn't just come out and say it. It's almost as if he wants you to think about that. 
He wants to just leave it there for you to think about for a little bit and meditate on that. And that's my challenge for you. Meditate on that this week. Why is love the greatest? How is love greater than even faith or hope? It'd be a great exercise because if you do that, you're going to meditate and think about his love for you. And when you are consumed and you are processing his love for you, what is the result of that? You're going to love him more. You can't help but think about God's love that is lavished and poured out on you without in response loving him deeper. But to get you started, let me just give you a hint. As you think about why is love the greatest, to get you off on the right note, agape is supreme because God isn't just hope. God isn't just someone to put your faith in. He is that, but he is more than just that. God is love. And if he didn't choose to love you first, we wouldn't love him. If he didn't send Jesus Christ down to this earth for you, you wouldn't have faith and you wouldn't have hope. Love is the thing that holds it all together. Find the love that you can never lose by faith in Jesus Christ. Find it in our loving, gracious, giving, merciful, outpouring, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stand up. We're going to sing now and respond and worship back to God and just praise him for his love for us. Let's do that right now. Let's sing to 